0: Time. On today's Sports Report, I'll have Lisa Lamb from the 90s British group Peach Union. She'll be talking to us about her life as a songwriter, mother, and wife. Also, she'll be sharing with us how her family is forever connected to Nelson and Winnie Mandela. Be sure to subscribe by going to our Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Also, you can check us out at our website at mediafanatics.com. Listen in, it's time for The Force Report. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have with me Lisa Lamb, formerly from the group Peach Union out of the UK. And I want to welcome you today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, The Force.
1: My pleasure, lovely to be here.
0: Yes, so uh, so Lisa, we, we go back a long way and um, uh, all the way back uh, to high school. So, uh, so uh, it's right. been, we've been friends for many years and your journey uh, has been a, quite a unique journey of life. Uh, and now, now, not only your journey of life, uh, your life, but it kind of spans generations.
2: <laughs> so <Yeah.
0: laughs> so, um, so I, would, I wanna get all of that into one big, uh, nice capsule within this show, hopefully. So um, let's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's start off by telling us, well, where are you originally from?
1: Well, I myself was born uh, in London um, in the uh, end of the sixties. Uh, my parents, however, were South African, and they but. had not been in London. Uh, for very many years by the time I was born because they were political exiles, apartheid government. Right. Uh, so they came to Britain in, I want to say like maybe 63. Um, and then their parents before that had uh, actually, my father's parents had lived in South Africa most of their lives. My mother's mother was a refugee from Lithuania and then Germany and had fled there. So she was twice exiled. Right. Um, so we, we really from kind of all over the place, and then we ended up in the United States, uh, which is how I ended up at Wilson with you. You're um, right. And then back in England, so I've been all over the place.
0: been all over the place.: Yeah.. yeah. Life in South Africa. I remember the book, the last book I read was Trevor Noah's book, um, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Born a
1: Crime. Yes. That's a great book. Great I love book. that book. Great
0: book. And I remember when years ago I had a good friend of mine uh, when I was at Howard University and she was from she was considered a mulatto. She used the term mulatto, and I'm like, wow, it's so, a it was a very interesting term, but she was talking about she was used from, the, uh, from South Africa. And some of these terms like color and all of this were still sort of being used. This was back in the early, in the mid 80s when we had graduated. And so uh, I, I was kind of surprised, but she kind of explained to me some of the apartheid issues and mixed marriages and being in America uh, is far different than
2: would have been in living in um, South Africa. So your father and
0: your your parents and your grandparents, their connection to the Mandela's
1: Right, well, uh, so the connection to the Mandela's is actually through my maternal grandparents. My my grandfather on my mother's side was the, uh, let me see, I think he was the General Secretary of the South African Communist Party. Now, most people, when they hear Communist Party, are freaked out and think, oh my God, you know, bad people, uh, hmm. Russians, Cubans, Chinese communists. But at the time, in the 1940s and 1950s, the South African... Communist Party was the only political party who was in alignment with the anti-apartheid movement and the African National Congress. And at the time, the ANC did not admit white people. So the white people who were in alliance uh, tended to be either the communists or big friends with uh, Nelson Mandela. And uh, in fact, when he married Winnie, my grandmother, who was a seamstress, made Winnie Mandela's wedding dress and they held the ceremony. In my grandparents home and my mother was there as, as a young teenager wow uh, so.
0: this is a fascinating picture here um of, yeah of winnie and nelson here at your grandparents house that's 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 i never knew that that's story right. about you uh, when we were younger <laughs> That's well, That's- you know,
1: I guess I never really—I didn't think about it too much when I was a kid. I mean, I think I was saying to you in an earlier conversation, my mom used to refer to Nelson as Uncle Nelson, and her first job was working working on the switchboard at uh, the offices of Mandela in Tambo, and Tambo when they had a law office, and that was in the days when, you know, a phone switchboard was like you had to pull out the the little plugs and put them back in again. She was really bad at it, and she was constantly disconnecting him and she said that uh nelson would come out and say oh barbara you must try so much harder um but she always used to call him uncle nelson and i think i was probably about 11 before i was like maybe he's not my actual real blood uncle <laughs> like I, I kind of figured it out i'm like oh yeah we look really different i think maybe maybe he's just one of those honorary, uncles. honorary on- uncles. um An honorary uncle, and um, yes, my I mean, you were talking about uh, Trevor Noah and Born a Crime and how it was illegal for blacks and whites to marry or socialize and intermingle, and when my grandmother would have the Mandela's, she would have to pull all the curtains in all the rooms so that you couldn't see in, and see that there was racial intermingling in their home. This was in the 1950s, when the apartheid government was, you know, at its really cracking down. So and this is the atmosphere that my young mother grew up in with con- my grandmother was the first white man to be put under 24-hour house arrest. And then when my parents were at university and they met, so this is I guess uh, at the end of the 50s, my father came from a fairly ordinary not political family, uh, but they met and they were my mom and dad were very politically involved and then my dad got uh, put into prison under the 90-day detention act, where they could just grab anyone and throw them in prison for, wow. without charging them. So wow. he was in prison when he was 19 for 90 days, and while he was there in prison, my my mom was there still. Being my grandparents had been instructed by the Communist Party to flee into exile, so my grandfather was driven in a car like under a blanket to the border of Mozambique and then flown out my grandmother left by plane they went to England and when my dad got out of prison parents who just were, were advised that they should probably pack up and leave because what they were doing is as soon as people got out under 90-day detention they just picked them up again and brought them back in Now my dad he was so young and he Although he was very motivated, he wasn't a serious insider. I mean, first of all, but he was white and he was young and from a sort of middle-class family. So he didn't get tortured beyond, they used to draw a square in the sun in the prison yard and just make them stand there. And then if they fell over, they'd throw water on them, but not the serious torture that other comrades were going through. But my young parents just thought, okay, we'd better get out. So they fled South Africa um, and came to England in the sixties, and then they couldn't return. Um, They were once you left, they were denied South African passports. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, they each had an Irish relative, so they became Irish citizens. Right. And then in England, um, and then a few years later, I was born, and that's why I'm British and not South African.
0: Oh, that's Mm -hmm. where okay. That's where it comes from. Yeah. Ah, so, so, uh, so had you, have you been able to travel back to uh, South Africa uh, during the time when,
1: actually, I guess? I went, I went before the end of apartheid when I was about, actually, right after I graduated from Wilson, I went uh, on my own to meet relatives that I'd never met before. So I still had family back in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I- you could see that the end was coming. So this would have been in, I guess, 1986, I went. Yeah. Um, and yeah. my mom actually was working in Washington um, with uh, a lobbyist group, actually, she, uh, and she was saying she worked quite a lot with uh, new president, Joe Biden, on against South Africa at the time.
2: What disturbs me more than the policy that you call a policy is the rationale for the policy. The rationale for the policy. You set out four principles that you, that you adhere to, and then you, and, and I will go over them in a moment. Then you say on page 14, we must not become part of South Africa's problem. We must remain part of their solution. We must not aim to impose ourselves, our solutions, our favorites in South Africa. Damn it, we have favorites in South Africa. The favorites in South Africa are the people who are being repressed by that ugly white regime. We have favorites. Our loyalty is not to South Africa, it's to South Africans. And the South Africans are majority black, and they are being excoriated. It is not to some stupid puppet government over there. It is not to the Afrikaner regime. We have no loyalty to them. We have no loyalty to South Africa, to South Africans. And the fact of the matter is we, I mean, I listen to this rationale first of all. It is the leaders of South Africa and their people, black and white, who have the majority responsibility. They must rise to it. Well, they are rising to it. They're rising to it. with The only thing left available to do with that repulsive, repugnant regime of Afrikaners there. And it's the only way they have. They have tried everything for the last 20 years. They begged, they borrowed, they crawled. And now they're taking up arms. The second thing, progress toward peace requires a timetable timetable, elimination of a party. what's our timetable? What are we saying to that repugnant regime? Are we saying you've got 20 days, 20 months, 20 years? We asked them to put up a timetable. What's our timetable? These people are being crushed. And we're sitting here with the same kind of rhetoric, the same thing we heard. We heard, go slow. We heard, We have to take care of the problem afterwards. We heard we can't impose- You you are totally misconstruing the testimony that I gave. Read first. Furthermore, Senator, let me say that I hate to hear a Senator of the United States calling for violence. I'm not calling for violence. That's what you're doing. That is exactly what you're doing. I hate to hear an administration and a secretary of state refusing to act on a morally abhorrent point. I hate to hear this country, I'm ashamed that this country puts out a policy like this that says nothing, nothing.
0: The closest thing I'd known about was, yeah, segregation in the United States. And being in DC, my, my, my grandparents, yeah. who moved from the south up to the north, and my, my mother and her mother, and uh, uh, sister and brother, they grew up in what was called DC Chocolate City. So, so it was in one sense. At that time, DC was more definitely it was more black until I went to until I met you at Wilson, which was you went to a very I think it was the school next to Sidwell Friends, and uh, that was the most diverse school in the in the city. Uh, where you almost had the United Nations, and so, but far as experiencing uh, this, seeing this discrimination, like it was, say, in South Africa, where people who had been there for generations and generations were denied. Yeah, you know, that's what. That's the unique it, thing it, about. It
1: was- Yeah, it was a shocker. And I have to say, because I had spent, like you, my teenage years in D.C., you know, America was so weird for me because I moved to the U.S. from England when I was 12 and I came from London um, in a very racially diverse area, which is not to say that there isn't racism is there most definitely is. But I came from you know there was a period where there'd been a lot of racial tension in Britain in the. Uh, early 80s late 70s early 80s and there was a lot of a movement for like the rock against racism movement and my school was very integrated and you saw a lot of integrated couples and you would be friends with whomever you know black people white people Indian people just everybody or and all religion's not such a big deal in Britain and then moving to the US I first went to New Haven where my mom was working Yale initially, and it was like, just didn't even talk to each other. It was very strange, and there was open hostility, which I found uh, weird. And then moving to D.C., which was Chocolate City in the 80s, uh, yeah. and uh, when actually we were talking about Wilson, which was diverse, although still predominantly African-American. Yes,
0: yes. Right.
1: I'd say some kids and maybe 200 white, another 100 mixed of asian americans right. and some hispanic kids um but they'd done a big push to uh, integrate the public school so a lot of kids were uh although it was a white area that wilson was situated in they right. bust in a lot of kids uh, my dad and my stepmom had uh rented an apartment in what was a very newly gentrifying part of dc i was actually one of the kids who was bussed in so <laughs> I, I got know. on the school bus in the morning and i'm like wow i look really different from <laughs> Yeah, that's funny, that's funny. On, yeah. on there, but it was like the UN, so that, Wilson was such a special experience, I think, oh. for all of us yes. who went there. Um, right. It was kind of amazing. And then to go from that and then go to South Africa, and it was like. Whoa. Very yeah. strange.
0: Wow. So how was South Africa for you?
1: Uh, well, that, that trip was weird. I mean, it's weird to see the kind of, You know, like every black person you saw at that time was still basically poor or a domestic servant. In the late 80s, I was not seeing bank managers or holding, you know, like uh, middle-class professions. By the time I went back again, uh, let's see. So Mandela, once Mandela was released, there was this weird, quite nice program that the South African government held that all of the kids who should, were children of exile who would have been born in south africa had their parents not been kicked out were then offered a passport and two thousand pounds to go to south africa so we were all in our early 20s with no money we were like so all of these kids i grew up with in london you know and we were all a real mix you know black kids white kids indian kids um we all like, we'll definitely take £2,000 on a holiday in South Africa, thanks very much. So we took our passports and we went. And by then it was definitely changing and there was kind of the truth and reconciliation and there was an affirmative action and a push to get uh, black South Africans into business, into government. You know, It was a huge change and that has only increased. mean, sadly, I, I feel like... Once Madiba died, corruption has crept in. I have not many good things to say about Zuma. Right. Um, it has not benefited everybody. And I actually, the last time I was in South Africa, I uh, was probably three years ago, and there just sadly seemed to be a lot of crime. Um, but I will say that there's a burgeoning black middle class, which is wonderful. I just wish that. There was more money spread amongst everybody, but I kind of wish that for the whole world. Really, yes. the income inequality is a big problem everywhere.
2: After graduation, well,
0: um, I knew you. Yeah. We were in. Uh, Chorus together. We we're in magicals. We we're in, oh, I guess, a lot of musical things, musical vo- vocal things together, uh, singing. And um, I, I know I went to Howard, and I think you got into a career. I know you got into a career uh, writing, singing, and tell us about that. How you, your well,
1: journey yeah. to eventually
0: get with Peach Union.
1: Well, it was kind of a long, a long journey. But um, like, uh, unlike you, Tony, I was not a very good student at Wilson, and I did enjoy <laughs> chorus. Although you probably have forgotten that I, I kind of slacked out of that about halfway through the year because it was an early, it was like a zero period, and I just couldn't get up. Right. <laughs> so I I couldn't get there at seven thirty in the morning. It was commute for me, and I was like, oh no, I'd rather sleep. And I spent most of my time at Wilson staring out the window, imagining how I was going to be this major rock star. Right. Um, and I didn't get very good grades because uh, I didn't like school very much. Um, <laughs> and I used to hang around with the punk rockers. Uh,
0: I remember
1: sat yes, uh, <laughs> by the horseshoe, smoking cigarette, and be cool with weird hair. Um, But when I graduated, um, I was just very focused on how I could get back to England. So um, I was actually 17 when I graduated and I was just, my parents would only let me go to England if I got into some kind of college. So I got myself into art school also because all of my big music heroes like Brian Ferry and Brian Eno had been to art college. So I was like, oh, that sounds like a great that's a great plan. I'll go to art college and then somehow magically I'll be a rock star probably by Christmas or something. To, to <laughs> a bit longer. Um, so I got back to England. I went to art school and um, then I just, I, I, like, I bought myself a keyboard and I'd taken piano lessons as a kid, um, although I'm not particularly good at it. And I just started like meeting other musicians and writing music and joining bands and, and then I had a stint as a judge it was super fun it made absolutely no money um in fact most of the things that I did for music made no money for many years um and then finally around the mid 90s I put out uh, a single it was a uh, drum and bass or jungle music they called mm-hmm. it and that got me a little bit of attention on the club circuit and at that point I was trying to get work as a session singer as well. And I was just going to audition after audition after audition. Um, And that's how I was making a living while I was also writing songs, trying to get some publishing interest. And then I ran into these two guys who were putting together, they had an idea that they were going to get two girls like ABBA style. Um, And when I went to meet them, I kind of liked what they were doing. It wasn't exactly the sort of music I'd been, I'd been doing more sort of R and B and soul and acid jazz. And they were doing this mad electronic pop music. But I liked it, and they were fun. So I said, "Oh, do you to come and record some stuff with us." And they already had a, a record deal with a small subsidiary label of Mute Records. And I was like, "Yeah, I'll totally do this." But I'm not doing it if there's another girl. I'm only doing it if it's just me because otherwise we're all going to argue. <laughs> um, and so That's we recorded right. the first, yeah. So we recorded <laughs> the first single, and then the, they loved this, and they put us onto the main mute records label which thrilled me because when I was a young teenager I used to listen to like Depeche Mode and uh, Yaz and all of those things that was like my all I listened to so for me it was like a big dream come true and and we started putting out a couple of records in England and then we got picked up by a big label by Epic Records in the US and they threw loads of money at the project and then suddenly it was like two years of Videos and tours and photo shoots and interviews. And
0: wow.
1: It was, quite, it was really exciting. And we had hit records of territories. And on the one hand, it was amazing and fantastic and like a dream come true. And then on the other hand, predictably, we started arguing like Spinal Tap, the three of us bickering. Right. And also, I wasn't in the studio very much. Right. I seemed to be doing all my time doing interviews this with a friend but like I'd be at some radio station in some town that I can't remember and they'd be saying what's your favorite moisturizer and I'd be going what's that got to do with music why am I here um wow. so uh and I remember calling my best friend and complaining and she's like would you shut up only you no, know, who just complains all the time and I was like well to be fair I am the, also the only pop star that you know and she's like, yeah, but this was your dream, and now you hate it. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I hate this. This is. And then I thought, you know, I'm a musician and a composer. I'm not really cut out for this pop star malarkey. So after the one album, we just decided to call it quits. And then I started writing music for like TV and film, and I started my own com- my own company writing music for like corporate stuff and.
2: That so was my
0: pop career. <laughs> so you so you you had a hit album, and you said, "I'm gonna write music. <laughs> I'm tired of this." Uh, some yeah. people it takes some people it takes uh, several uh, several albums, uh, but not a, a good album, and then they would have to wait to their sophomore album either to fail, or and then they put out another album. And then next thing you know, you're in you're in debt with the record company, so. So you didn't have to go with that through that.
1: I guess not. You know, and I think, Tony, if we if the three of us had been having a great time together and if we had all been really committed to it and if I had loved the music industry, I think it would have been different. But I, it was one of those moments in life. And I guess I was about 28 or 29. And I suddenly went this dream that I dreamed up. I dreamed when I was 15 and sitting in a classroom at Wilson. And it looked so Appealing, and now I'm an adult, and it just isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And I can spend, I can deny this and spend all this time chasing it, or I can just kind of follow my heart here and go, This was super fun, and I've been so lucky to get this far. But also, you know, realistically, so you know, we had a hit album, we sold some records, we made a bit of money, but I wasn't going to be like Prince and okay. I wasn't going to be a duper, duper mega megastar. I'd probably be able to squeeze a couple more records out of it, and then I'd, none of my friends would like me anymore because I'd just complain all the time. And then I would have been 40, and I wouldn't have had anything else. You know, I wouldn't have done anything else. It was time to kind of spread my wings and make a change. I just feel like if you're a real artist, you just always want to change and train you, and it was time to do something different.
0: As a writer, um, as a composer and writer, uh, you've kind of written on for some films, I believe.
1: I've written for mentories, I've done lots of advertising and I specialized for a while in those little like corporate stings, which a lot of people be like, oh, thanks very much for getting in my brain and ruining uh. my life. Stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it's just just a lot of Sitting in the studio, working to a brief, stuff like that. Um, And then I also branched out into, like, turning my lyrics into poetry. And then I wrote a novel in the last couple of years. um, And uh, I've been published in uh, literary journals. So I kind of take my creativity wherever it lends me. And most recently, the last few years, I've been working as a music teacher with elementary kids in... a a local school and I have to say that's actually the most fun I've ever had with music because kids are just hilarious they're so funny and they're so fresh and open and it kind of takes you right back to that you love music you're not trying to be cool you're not trying to impress anyone you're just sharing stuff with people whose ears are open and that's kind of amazing and you rediscover things through them I think it's changed a lot i mean i think one of the things that's changed a great deal is that the internet has democratized things
0: yes
1: so it really is possible for artists to uh, i mean first of all and i think this is true of our generation too is that for us it was financially possible to create your own music like in a little home studio it maybe wasn't at the same quality as A published record but you could certainly make a very very decent demo and then you know by nine the mid 90s you could make something that sounded like a real record and produce it on your own by now any fool can do that on an ipad i mean it's amazing what music um, technology has done
0: well you know i'm working with artists and you and i work on we're working on projects together and it used to be at one point Either you had to fly here or something like that and you get in the same studio if you're in the 80s to work together. Now I can send you <laughs> whatever I need to send you via email and you send it That's back it. to me.
1: Exactly. So I think that, that that is a huge sea change. The other thing is if you can publish your own music, I mean, you can, you can become popular through youtube or TikTok or any of these different social media platforms and you can amass your own fan base um and you know the music the big record companies are kind of dinosaurs it does mean that the onus is on the artist to be their own publicist and not every artist is good at that or wants Mm -hmm. to do it i mean i always hated that um so that there still remain jobs to be done by all kinds of people i think that it's uh i think the you can really see societal change. Like I was listening to, I was listening to some song lyrics. Just my kids, uh, who are teenagers, listen to pretty mainstream pop music. They like listen to hits one on Sirius FM, and I was listening to some of the lyrics, especially by some of the young young women, and they're really like. I feel like all of the pop songs in the. 80s and 90s by young women were very kind of victim-based or like they're sitting there waiting for some guy to, it was either boo-hoo, he's been so mean to me, or I want someone to come and love me. These girls are just accepting zero crap from anyone. Yes. And they're taking their own <laughs> careers, they're writing their own music, right. they're uh, producing their own songs, and the songs are about their experience. And I want to be quite clear that I always knew women Who were writing that kind of material? I mean, I was, my friends were, uh, women older than me had been doing that in generations before, but nobody would publish it. Taking a song that had more of a, uh, for want of a better word, a feminist slant to it, to a record company and them saying, "We just don't think that a girl who looks like you should really sing a song like that." And I felt my head explode with rage. I wanted to kill someone. And yeah, Ash now is so mainstream, and she's just kicking butt. And writing her Mm. stuff and it's out there and I love that and people who are not conventionally attractive like who's that guy my kids are always um, the Scottish guy he's got a beautiful beautiful voice but he's quite like Mm. heavy Um,
0: oh
1: okay his name will come back to me in a minute Um, but he's just like some ordinary guy who'd live next door and you know probably eats too much pizza at the weekend and then my son was like oh I love him I don't have to hate him because I'm not threatened by Oh, Lewis Capaldi. Lewis Capaldi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. never have signed him 15 years ago, because he doesn't look like Harry Styles. But he's amazing. He's fantastic. He's a great singer. And he's got a great personality. And I feel like that's how the industry has changed. That's how society has changed. We're just more open. And it's more about talent and less about appearance and how they can package you.
0: Girl, you come from such a dynamic background. I'm like I said, I'm so um, proud to to have you as uh, my friend. Uh, love you with all my heart. You're a good. Yeah, oh, you, yeah, same you, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so uh, go all the way back. So uh, I'm looking forward to once this COVID stuff goes gets over. Uh, Meeting, meeting your husband finally, yeah, <laughs> uh, and your kids, and um,
1: we'll uh, come visit.
0: Yes, I, I want you guys to come visit and uh and hang out and, and break bread. <laughs> so, um, Excellent. Yeah, so we, we got to do that. So,
1: all right. It, thank you so much. It was great to see you.
0: It's been real, and I appreciate your time. And uh, tell everyone gotcha. I said hi. Tell your Will dad do. I said hello. Talk Will to you later. Do. Take
1: care. Bye.